This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. How are you? I'm good. I only see pictures. I see photographs. Yeah, do you want us to come on video? Whatever you want to do. It's okay. fun. We see each other that way. Welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm your host, Jonathan Master. We are delighted to welcome our guest today. Dr. Richard Phillips serves as Senior Minister of Second Presbyterian Church in Greenville, South Carolina, and he is chair of the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology, among many other duties that he has. He's written a number of books, including What's So Great About the Doctrines of Grace, and he writes for the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals regularly at Reformation21.org. He is speaking at the aforementioned PCRT, and he's come to talk to us today about some of the topics he'll be addressing at that conference, namely the Reformation of Worship and the Priesthood of Believers. So, Rick, thanks for joining us. You're welcome, Jonathan. Great to be here. Rick, I want to start out just by talking about worship. How did the Reformation change the notion and practice of public worship? Well, uh, hugely. I mean, it's going to be part and parcel with the recovery of the authority of Scripture. You have the development of all kinds of accretions, in fact, a whole Aristotelian sacramental theology that comes to dominate the Roman Church in the Middle Ages, you know, not based on Scripture. And so as soon as people start reading the Bible and giving it the final authority, it's always, in fact, this is a good word for our generation, if we believe in sola scriptura, that's not only our message that's going to be biblical, but our methods are going to be biblical. Our methods of ministry are going to be biblical, and our approach to worship is going to be biblical. So the Reformation of worship was an overflow of the, of the authority of Scripture reestablished through Sola Scriptura. Now, many writers, and in fact many congregations today, downplay the significance of public worship, and they prefer to talk about it in terms of uh, you know, just a teaching time or some, some sort of Sunday morning gathering. Why is the notion of public worship so significant? Yeah, we would never want to deny the importance of your life seven days a week as a, as a living sacrifice. Paul uses that language, picking up on the thank offerings of the temple. So we want to affirm and, and motivate people saying, all my life is worship to God, amen. To him be glory. We wouldn't want to disincentivize family worship. But when the Bible speaks of worship, you think of the Psalms, come into his courts with praise. Let us gather together. It's corporate worship. And so if we look at the biblical idea of the worship of Christians, the first thing we should think of is the worship of the church. And that means that even even when we're all together, it's not a bunch of us being individuals. I think one of the things going on with the megachurch phenomenon, they turn the lights down in the arena— You have anonymity, and you're having a private, spiritually ecstatic experience. It's actually very Roman Catholic. In a mass group with others, but there's actually not that much that's corporate about it. There's a praise band. You're admiring their talents, and you're kind of going along with them, but you're having a private experience publicly. Well, that's not what the Bible's about either. It's not only public worship, it's congregational, unison worship. And so... uh, the affirmation of our faith, the singing of hymns and psalms and spiritual songs. The Bible's primary motif for worship is the gathered corporate worship of the Kahal Yahweh, 
the assembly of God, that is the primary way to think about worship. And it needs to be emphasized. What we're doing today is it's all our individuality. It's the low ecclesiology of a lot of evangelical folks. And so why should I go to church? You know, I, I, I watch a sermon on the Internet. That's worship. No. I mean, it, it is a form of worship, but you're neglecting the primary worship duty, which is to gather corporately with the congregation in the presence of God and give him praise. Come into his courts with praise. You've touched on the authority of Scripture and how that is to shape our worship, and, and you've touched on some other important biblical emphases on gathered public worship. I wonder what other emphases of the Reformation ideas of worship or the Reformation of worship seem to be lost or have been entirely lost in today's modern evangelical context. You know, we look at the Reformation and worship, you're going to kind of start with Luther and move to Calvin. So you're going to start with uh, the fundamentals, the radical break, and then the flushing of that out, and then even so in the, the Puritans and whatnot. So the first thing you're going to say about it is it's the dethronement of the sacraments from the central place and a wrong, unbiblical, sacramental theology that Rome had. That's going to be removed. The pulpit is going to be placed in the center instead of the altar. And so the Reformation is first and foremost— going to worship through the not only according to the Word of God, but through the Word of God, by means of the Word of God. Now, again, I attended a, a church service this summer, and it was, I, I admit, I after a while I started timing it, it was 36 minutes into the service before the Word of God was first referenced or read. And today, the broad evangelical movement sees worship as a cathartic spiritual ecstasy experience, rather than primarily the proclamation and the teaching of God's Word. And so it's actually a different religion. And so I would argue that broad evangelicalism, particularly in its megachurch expression, is simply not doing Christian worship, and in many cases is not doing Christian religion. The centrality of the Word according to the Word, and then the content of the worship being centered on the Word of God, that is the first thing you want to say about worship in the Reformation, and that is a vital necessity. You know, now you don't, instead of the exposition of Scripture, where you're proclaiming, explaining, applying the text to the people, it's kind of a comedy route. You know, even the setup's that way. There's a brick wall with a microphone and a guy in torn jeans, and he's being hilarious. And he's maybe he's referencing the Bible, he's got some points, but it's his entertainment shtick, completely different, and I would say far closer to Roman Catholic in theology and function than Reformation worship. I need to switch gears here for a moment to a topic that is not unrelated, but is not exactly the same. I want to talk about the priesthood of the believer, and I wanted to start with just a definition. I wonder, Rick, if you could just explain to our listeners what theologians mean when they discuss the priesthood of the believer. Yeah, the doctrine arises in the Reformation out of the context in which there was a radical divide between the laity and the priests. The priests were a different order of being. Their sacrament of ordination almost did a change of nature. And so the spiritual people were the ordained priests. The carnal people, the temporal people, were the laity. And so the Roman Catholic view had then, and effectively has now, if you're a farmer, if you're a lawyer, you're not doing spiritual work. You have priests to do that for you. You, you pay for them to do things like pray. They're mediating between you and, and God 
They're doing the spiritual work, and you're dependent on the work that they're doing. My father-in-law died about two months ago, and he was in Philadelphia, a lot of Roman Catholic friends, very sweet people. And we started getting cards in afterwards saying that they had paid money at a monastery for the monks to pray for his soul. Uh, Just very fascinating. Whereas the evangelical instinct is we're praying for you. The instinct of Roman Catholic piety is we will pay to have priests pray for you. So against that backdrop, the priesthood of all believers says, no, there's no two-tier Christianity. Sure, there are offices, there are callings, there are vocations, but we are all spiritual. And we all are to do the work of spirit. And so particularly when it comes to worship, it's not the priests, it's not the paid specialists who are doing the worshiping while we watch them and benefit from them doing it. No, the congregation is doing the worship, and one of the congregation members is the minister, and he's filling his role. But uh, it's congregational worship. And so this wonderful principle that all Christians are spiritual, all Christians have equal access to God through Jesus Christ. In the words of Hebrews, the veil is down. Actually, we have a better access than the Old Testament priest did, because we are into the Holy of Holies through the Holy Spirit. So I would argue that the priesthood of all believers was the doctrine that affected the most radical social change in the time of the Reformation. That's why in the PCRT we're, we're focusing on that. Typically you do five addresses, you do each of the solas. Well, we're doing the solas, but we wanted to talk about the Reformation of worship. And then this vital matter of the priesthood of all believers, there are not worship professionals. You are... Everyone has the same consecration to the worship and service of God. In the Roman Catholic Church, of course, there was a communion in one kind. And so the laity was not given the wine. The priest would eat the bread and drink the wine, and the laity would only get the bread. And that was just a way of putting them down, putting them in their place. And interesting, in the years leading up to the Reformation, you know, as you know, Jonathan, the Reformation was not a single event. It wasn't just about 1517. There was a whole work of the Lord and the Holy Spirit, even in the generation beforehand. One of the things going on in in the free cities of the Rhineland in Germany was reform-minded priests who were disturbed about this. They were handing out German-language prayers to the laity. So while you were sitting in church, the Mass is going on, the priest is speaking in Latin, there was something for you to do. Uh, under the Roman Catholic system, there's nothing for you to do. You sat there, you, you put the wafer in your mouth, and you, you did what they told you. You venerated the priest. And so they actually were handing out prayers. Here, while the priest is doing that, you pray. And so the vital issue, now again, I, I think this is being lost among evangelicals. We have the celebrity culture, the nature of contemporary worship. My problem with contemporary worship is not primarily the music. It's the whole theology of worship that's at work there, where you are being mediated by a celebrity musician or a celebrity preacher who can say whatever anything he wants. He's not under the authority of the word in any meaningful way. Uh, we need to restore the congregation. The Christian people are spiritual people. So Luther applying this is going to say, you know, the garbage man does his work under God. And see, this revolutionized life, and it should. My life, my secular vocation matters to God in all that you do, word or deed, do it all to the glory of God. Now, Luther, you know, used it as a way of attacking the Roman Catholic hegemony. He's trying to get Reformation. He's he's relying on the German princes to do the work, and they don't want to do it because they, they're like, they don't feel like they have the authority to critique priests. Priests are above them. They're spiritual beings. Uh, and so the, the Pope, as Luther said in his address to the German nobility, there's three walls the Pope has erected around 
himself, so he can't be reformed. The trumpet blast that, that Luther blew in the address of the German nobility was the priesthood of all believers. And so his argument narrowly was that the German princes had the authority to demand reform in the church because they were not inferior spiritually. How you would asked you for a short answer, I'm sorry. Uh, no, 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 there's so much to discuss there, and I appreciate the background, that particularly the historical background I think is helpful for people. But you're ordained to a public teaching office, and what I'm wondering is if you could sort of set the priesthood of the believer, which, which you set against the Roman Catholic idea of priesthood, the priesthood of the believer, and, and kind of fit that in with what we would also agree is a very important truth, which is that some men are are set apart for public ordained teaching office. Could you yeah, sort of set word, those things in context? That word priest is a loaded term, and, 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 and intentionally so. I am not a priest. Christ is the high priest, and we are all priests in him, just as we are all kings in him, our king, and we are all prophets in him, our prophet. And so uh, I do not mediate the grace of God through my labors, and again, in Rome, it's almost in a magical way. The priest had power through the Latin words to make the elements into the body of Christ. So his labor is that which is effectual in giving them the redemptive benefits of Christ. I don't have that at all, so I'm not a priest. That's really important. Even, you know, I wear a robe on Sundays because I'm, I exercise an office in the institution of the Church of Jesus Christ. And, you know, officers wear uniforms. Policeman wears a uniform. Uh, military officer wears a uniform. At church on Sunday, I wear a uniform. I wear a Geneva robe. As you're looking at me on Skype right now, I'm not wearing it. I'm not wearing a habit. I look no, like the Southern gentleman than I am. I, I can see, testify to that. You know, and so I, I am not permanently on a different plane, in a different class, above the laity. I am one of them who has the gifts and the particular calling. I'm set apart for a function and role in the church, but my role is different in kind, but not in degree. The deacon's just as important and, and just as spiritual. The woman working in the nursery or the man working in the nursery, the garbage man. And Luther made direct appeal in the address of the German nobility, of course, to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Where the emphasis is not in a dual reality among the body of Christ, the body is one, many functions, the, you need the ear, you need the mouth, you need the hand, and so I'm the mouth, as it were, as, as the preacher, but that's just a calling and gifting, I am not a different kind of Christian. See, that makes me accountable, among other things, and it also elevates the people that their work is every bit as spiritual as mine on Sunday and during the week, and so... Yeah, now, you know, the Radical Reformation is always going to take things too far. And so you have among the Quakers, the Mennonites, some of those groups, where they got rid of all offices. And the Quaker meeting, they sit in a circle or square, and there's no office. Well, the New Testament clearly establishes offices. In Ephesians 4, he gave some to be apostles and prophets, some to be pastor teachers. And so there's, there's gifts and there's offices in the church. But there is no two-tier spiritual hierarchy. We are, I am a... I'm a Christian who has the particular calling of being a teaching elder in the church. Yeah, no, and that's helpful clarification. I think that's what I was trying to draw out, the fact that, you know, it is the case, though, in your congregation that not every man sitting in the congregation would be in a position to come up and 
lead people in the sacraments or to preach perhaps on a Sunday morning. So there, there are those distinctions, but I appreciate your point, which is well, it's not, that's yep, not a priesthood all, distinction. Yeah. And they're all competent to interpret the scripture though. New Testament is clear about that. We have the spirit, we have the mind of Christ. It doesn't mean that we, you know, are inspired in an apostolic sense. But Christians are competent to, and you know, we need to, New Testament's clear, we need to develop that competency. But every Christian man, woman, and child needs to rightly be able to interpret the scriptures. But to that end, teachers are given to the church. And so the teacher is given not to monopolize the ministry of the word, but to facilitate the ministry of the word. Of course, I'm using ministry in a way that some would object to. But uh the lay ministry of the word, we our teen, our children need to understand the scriptures and to apply it. Our college students need to be witnesses on the college campus. They are serving the ministry of the word that the teaching elder is there to is equipped and trained. He's set apart. I do it vocationally, you know, while other people are at a law firm or at a accounting desk. I'm studying the Bible, so what I was doing all morning, working on my sermons. So I do this vocationally, as the New Testament says I should be set apart for. And I serve the church in that teaching office. But notice that in a confessional church, Jonathan, it's not my private interpretation. It's not my private competency. I am accountable to a standard of the church of which I'm a member, and the congregation gets to know what that standard is. And you know, I never, I never mind someone who says to me, "Can you explain how this is biblical?" I love that question. Or uh, I, 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 I'm not sure you got that right in the sermon. But that's great. And uh, I am not myself authoritative. I am the servant of them through that which is authoritative. Rick, last question: uh, When it comes to worship, Reformation ideas of worship, or the issue of the priesthood of the believer. What resources or books would you recommend, anything that's been especially helpful to you, anything that you put in the hands of members of your congregation if they ask about these things? You know, there's not a lot of the priesthood of all believers in our literature, to be honest with you. And having just given an address on it, I, I discovered that. I think the best resource is Martin Luther's address to the German nobility. And what's fascinating is that Luther makes a very brief appeal to it. He's always got a great rhetorical device. There's three walls around the Jericho of the papacy. I'm going to blow the trumpet like Josh. I'm going to knock him down. Here's my trumpet. It's the priesthood of all believers. And it's like a page or two. And then, he, then, he, then he's just working it out. In Luther's view, it's so obvious from 1 Peter 2, 5 to 9, Revelation 1, 5 and 6, 1 Corinthians 12. He, it's fascinating that he doesn't really develop it. And you won't find a lot of literature on it, to be honest with you. So you're going to find it in the systematic theologies. You're going to find it in the, in the history. I, I actually, I found some great stuff on it in Roland Baton's Here, Here We Stand. His Roland Baton's great biography of Luther was a really good source on it. Philip Schaff's History of the Church had a really good section on it at the beginning of Volume 7 on the Reformation in Europe. So it really, you find in the church histories and the systematic theologies, it, there's not a lot of literature available, to be honest with you. So you should write a book on it, Jonathan. Well, I'll put that on my to-do list. And Rick, thanks. I'm working uh, thanks on it. I've got two books I'm working on now. I can't <laughs> add a new book. No, no, I'm no. I, I, I'll, I'll take it under consideration. Hey, Rick, thanks for your time. I know you're busy, but I appreciate the time today. Uh, it's great. God bless you all and anytime, okay? The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals is supported by donors like you. You can contribute on placefortruth.org or via alliancenet.org. 
And I want to say thanks again for tuning into Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. <laughs>